John's Gospel, chapter 20, reading from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. It's always a logical place to finish. (laughs) There's no prizes for guessing where we are going to be reading from. (laughs) It was late that Sunday evening, and the disciples were gathered together behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. And then Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. And after saying this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were filled with joy at seeing the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive people's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And one of the twelve disciples, Thomas, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas said to them, unless... I see the scars of the nails in his hands and put my finger on those scars and my hand in his side, I will not believe. And a week later, wouldn't you just know it, the disciples were gathered together again and Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked But Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Then stretch out your hand and put it in my side. Stop your doubting and believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Do you believe because you see me? Happy are those who believe without seeing me. And in his disciples' presence, Jesus performed many other miracles which are not written down in this book. But these have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him, you may have life. Amen. It's a great joy to share with you and to consider Uh, what we've just read from John's Gospel. 
You know, books are written for many different reasons. Some books inform us, some books amuse us, some books shock us. And I've no doubt that the writers of books usually have purpose in writing their books, even if it's just to make money for themselves. A recent survey by the Guardian newspaper revealed the bestsellers of all times. And uh, within that list, I've just picked one or two examples. Uh, 817,000 copies have been sold of The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Uh, One million copies of Delia's How to Cook Book One by Delia Smith have been sold. Apparently 1.5 million copies of The World According to Clarkson by Jeremy Clarkson have been sold. And 4.2 million copies of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone by J.K. Rowling. But did you know that every year in excess of 100 million copies of the Bibles are produced? And it's estimated that since printing has been around, over 6 billion copies of the Bible have been produced. But you know, John wrote his gospel with a driving purpose. And he states that driving purpose quite categorically in the last couple of verses uh, that Richard just read to us. Um, Slightly different translation, but the the meaning is still the same. Uh, We were told by John that John did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in his book, And here's the crucial thing. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I think John makes it quite clear that he has recorded his account of the ministry of Jesus with the explicit intention that you may believe. John's not written his gospel in order to enhance our theological understanding, even though his gospel certainly does this. Neither has he written his gospel that we may become more familiar with the facts about the life of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, even though his gospel certainly does that. John has written his gospel to you And to me, dear friends, to understand who Jesus is, that we may entrust ourselves completely to Jesus Christ, and in so doing, may become possessors of eternal life. Now, within those verses between 24 and 29, we read this encounter with Thomas and the risen Lord Jesus which I believe is the climax of John's writing. And John uses this encounter to underline his purpose in writing his gospel. And it's here that John explains exactly what saving faith is all about. Saving faith that guarantees eternal life for all who believe. Now, prior to that, we read the earlier account, the the week preceding that event, 
And verses 19 to 23 tell us all about the disciples who meet with the risen Lord. And John records for us that they were afraid, so much so in fact that they were meeting behind locked doors. And they knew that the body of Jesus had disappeared from the tomb, but now they meet him as the risen Lord face to face. And they are overjoyed. And we read that Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his side. And John records that the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now in verses 24 to 29, John deliberately introduces the absentee disciple, the disciple who was not present at that first encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. A whole week has passed by and now Thomas is with the rest of the disciples and John is most careful to record and highlight this wonderful conversation between Jesus and Thomas. And John does this to set out the substance of true saving faith. And thereby, he clinches the purpose for which he has written the gospel. So first of all, then, let us consider what are the foundations of saving faith. What are the foundations of saving faith? Well, in this last verse that we read, John is saying to you and to me, and I'm sort of paraphrasing it here, Uh, He's saying, listen carefully, I've written these things in this gospel so that you, dear reader, may believe what is the singularly most important thing you will ever believe. That's what John is saying to us here. And we may conclude, therefore, that the substance of belief that will save a person is founded on the written word of God. It's founded on what John tells us. It's founded on this book that we call the Bible. Now up to this point, Thomas has stated quite categorically that he does not and will not believe. The person who he knew as Jesus of Nazareth has died and has been buried. And Thomas knew this to be the fact. And yet this same person who Thomas saw being put into the tomb... Is now, it's now being claimed that he's recently been seen walking about alive and well. But Thomas refuses to believe this. And you know, that sort of fits in with who Thomas was. In many ways, we know so little about Thomas, the other gospel writers merely mention his name and nothing else. And yet John, I, and again I think this is for our benefit, has already introduced us to this disciple called Thomas, also known as Didymus the twin. And he's introduced him in such a way that he's given us a very little cameo of his character. And when I investigated the character of Thomas in the other two um, sections of John's Gospel, do you know, I was quite alarmed because I saw a lot of myself in Thomas. Let's just recount those two other events where John introduces us to Thomas. Uh, Remember the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11 of John's Gospel? Well, perhaps you can't quite remember the setting, 
But Jesus had been preaching and there had been increasing tension with the authorities and there had been threats on his life. And so the disciples and Jesus had deliberately moved away from Judea just because the heat was getting a little bit too hot for them. And there were all these continued threats to Jesus and his followers. And it's at this point when they hear about the, 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 uh, the fact that Lazarus is dying that Jesus says, well, I think we need to go back to Judea. Uh, you know, let's go back where all this trouble is because we need to go and look after the grieving sisters of Lazarus. And it's Thomas who makes a comment at this point. He says this, Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And you know that's not the words of any heroism. Those are the utterings of a cynic. That is what he's saying. He said, well, let us also go and that we may die with him. That is what Thomas is saying. That's the way he's saying it. And you know, again, in chapter 14, when Jesus explains to the disciples that he must go to the Father, it's Thomas who makes a particularly sceptical response. Um, in John 14, we read this. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Skepticism. And you know, as I look at those two little cameos of Thomas, I see so much of myself. I fight with cynicism and skepticism on a daily basis. And you know, I think, in a sense, we all have a bit of Thomas in us, don't we? Do you recognize that in yourself on your darker days? So Thomas has refused to believe. But Jesus, in his supreme grace and kindness and love, accommodates this weakness of Thomas and lovingly encourages Thomas to faith by delivering what Thomas has asked for, by giving him sight and offering him this physical evidence that Thomas had emphatically demanded a week earlier. Remember the words that he said? Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And then Jesus, face to face with Thomas, says this. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now we may well ask, did Thomas actually touch? I doubt it very much. But what we do know is this and what John has recorded for us with such purpose is that Thomas believed. And you know, John is writing this for you and for me. For we who cannot see. For us who cannot have our faith strengthened by sight or physical touch. 
We who cannot see with our physical eyes that very same man who we knew appeared in our room before our eyes and say to us, peace be with you, we don't have that. We cannot see it. Jesus does not give us that option. So it brings us to the question, what then must be the exclusive foundation of our faith today? We can't see Jesus. We can't be face to face where he says, touch me. And John answers this because he says that these are written, and he's referring to all his gospel account, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The scriptures, the Bible, they must be the foundation of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And if we ever hope to have eternal life in Jesus Christ, then we must be deadly serious about this. There is no other foundation for our faith, but this word of God, the Bible, is everything to us. We who cannot see, we who cannot feel. But you know, it isn't all that surprising, therefore, that throughout history, right up to our present day, and doubtless until Jesus returns again, there has always been great controversy concerning the Bible. Can this word of God that you have before you really be trusted? Is the scripture correct? Is it accurate? Can we really take this Bible and say that these words alone are sufficient? Are they the sufficient foundation for our eternal life? Can we really be sure? And don't we ourselves sometimes think how much easier it would be to believe if only we'd seen what Thomas saw and been offered what Thomas was offered. If only I could see Jesus face to face or have some some supernatural sign, it would be so much easier for me to believe. If only I could have seen those nail marks in his hands. Some miracle, however small, would make all the difference. It would prove to me that the Bible must be true. But you know, those sorts of thoughts are as old as the gospel itself. And Jesus spoke about it and he warned us against it. Remember that Jesus told a parable about a rich man who ended up in hell. And he pleaded with God to send a man named Lazarus who had died at the same time, but in this case had gone to heaven. And the rich man pleads that Lazarus should be raised to life and return to the earth to warn his brothers that hell is real. But this is a parable of Jesus, and this is what Jesus taught. This is the rich man in hell speaking, first of all. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Jesus is talking here about a conversation with Abraham. Just, It's a little bit confusing if you don't understand that. But this is Jesus' parable, but it's the man who's actually speaking to Father Abraham. And Abraham replies, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. 
But the rich man in hell goes on and says, No, Father Abraham, um, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, this is Abraham speaking and this is Jesus' parable, he said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. And you know there's a very important message there. And if we think about it, at the time of Jesus and during his ministry, thousands of people saw Jesus in the flesh. Thousands saw and witnessed his miracles. And for many, there was temporary excitement. There was superficial belief. There were religious stirrings. But true saving faith, faith that lasts and takes us to eternity, always finds its foundation in the word of God alone. As Jesus was teaching in that parable, let them listen to Moses and the prophets. In other words, let them read the scriptures. That is the sole authority that we have. And you know, we as Christians in the 21st century really need to assert this truth. We need to assert it today because more people than ever before are challenging the truth of the Bible. And perhaps some people will say almost piously to us, well, The foundation of saving faith, of course, is in Jesus, not on a book. It's that person, not the paper and the ink. But what do we know about Jesus if we take away the Bible? If we take away the Bible, what is left? The Bible is crucial for our faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible alone is sufficient for faith today. Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But he went on to say, blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. And you know that word blessed is a Greek word, makarios. And it doesn't simply mean that such people are happy. But rather more importantly, it has the second And more important link, that to be blessed also means to be accepted by God. So those who have not seen, yet have believed, are accepted by God, as well as happy. And John adds his vital comment then, at this point in time, in his Uh, writings and says Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his, his disciples which are not recorded in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name God expects us to stake everything on his written word and Paul teaches this uh, in his letter to the Romans He says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. There he uses the word, the word of Christ, the word of God. Uh, They sort of mean the same thing. Blessed, therefore, are we who cannot share Thomas's experience of sight but who in part because of what we have read of Thomas's experience 
have come to share Thomas's faith. For you and me, faith comes not by sight, but from what is heard and what is read. And what is heard comes from the word of Christ. It comes from the word of God. And John makes it quite clear that that is the only real reason why he's written his gospel. It's that very point that he makes in verse 31. So we've started by exploring that the word of God is the foundation of our faith. Let's go on to consider what is the object of our saving faith. What is the object of our saving faith? Well, John tells us in verse 31 that these are written that you may believe, but what is it that he wants us to believe? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so the object of real faith, the object of authentic faith, is the person of Jesus Christ. And Thomas, in verse 28, declares that this Jesus is the one that he puts his trust in. This Jesus is the one that he worships. And we see that wonderful response where Thomas said to the Lord, My Lord and my God. And this is the declaration that brings that immediate confirmation from Jesus. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. He confirms that Thomas now has that vital faith. And the point is this, that saving faith always involves personal involvement with the Jesus of John's gospel. The Jesus that John and the other gospel writers wrote about, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the resurrection and the empty tomb. Remember what happened in the Acts of the Apostles. Remember that event in the jail where Paul and Silas meet with the Philippian jailer. Remember what happened. The jailer called for lights and he rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? A fundamental and vital question the jailer asks. Now, did Paul and Silas reply, well, believe there is a God? Did they say, believe that God created the world? Did they say, believe in the historical existence of Jesus and that he was a good man and a good teacher? They said none of those things. When we look at their reply that they gave to the jailer, we see this. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What the jailer needed was to put his faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And the same is exactly true today. We must believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And Thomas's confession said, my Lord and my God. You see, the object of our faith is not in our imagination. The object of our faith is not a Jesus who we would like in some way to be Lord. It's not of our own making. The object of our faith is not a Jesus who is cut loose from Scripture. The faith that we have and the faith that Thomas has must reside in this person who is the real Jesus. The unique person whom, G, whom John writes about. Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin, God incarnate. The one who is vindicated as Lord by his death-defying act of coming out of the tomb alive. 
And Thomas here is uninhibited in his confession. He says, my Lord and my God. Now we can look at that phrase and we can think it's a wonderful phrase, but do you know the impact of that phrase that would have been true in that particular setting? Remember that Thomas was a Jew, and for a Jew to look upon another physical person in the flesh and declare that person to be God was the height of blasphemy. To say, my God, of a living person would have been extreme blasphemy in Jewish eyes. But Thomas believes on Jesus, and he believes who he is. He really believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Jesus is saying to Thomas, well, you needed to see, but others will not be able to see me. And yet they will believe what you now believe. The Lord that Thomas saw die on the cross, who was the same Lord who, G- who Thomas now sees alive in that locked room, is the essential part of saving faith. And Thomas confessed it, and so must you and I confess it. If we don't confess what Thomas confessed, then we're not saved. It's as simple as that. It has to be that real to each one of us. Otherwise, it cannot be real saving faith. The object of our faith is the real, living, ascended, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Let us finally then consider what is the reward of saving faith. What is the reward of saving faith? I'm going to ask a blunt question. Are you ready to die? Many people will say, well, I'm not sure about that, but I'm certainly ready to live. But you know, one of the greatest rewards of saving faith is that it enables us to face the inevitability of human death without fear and even with a certain hope and with joy. I lost a dear friend two years ago. She died at the age of 89. But I remember her 80th birthday. And she said to me, she took me aside and she said, you know, Peter, I'm so looking forward to being with my Lord. And isn't that what you and I want? Do we not want to be able to say that as we live? We so look forward to meeting with the Lord. We need not fear what lies ahead. Death is inevitable unless Jesus returns before we die. But we can face it with that certain hope and that joy that a place has already been made for us. There's a place waiting for each one of us in heaven. And John wanted you and me to understand this when he wrote the gospel. Because he said all those things concluding and that by believing you may have life in his name. For life in the name of Jesus is an eternal life. It's a guaranteed glorious future. And John in his writing and through the experience of Thomas has shown you and me the marks in the hands of Jesus. He's presented us with the Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. He's presented us with the Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. 
He's also presented us with the Jesus who is the Good Shepherd, who states quite clearly, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. That is the guarantee that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can snatch you or me out of our Father's hand. What then is our reaction to all of this? Do we really give thanks each moment of the day that the Lord Jesus Christ has died for us? Do we really thank him every moment of the day that he has dealt and taken away our sin? And are we utterly amazed that we know with absolute certainty that we are saved for eternity? And what are these wounds that Thomas looked upon? What are these wounds to you? Are they the wounds of death or are they the marks of eternal life? Thomas needed actual visual and physical proof that Jesus had truly risen from the dead. And Jesus in his grace and love came to Thomas and showed him what he needed to see. So you and I should be greatly encouraged since Jesus Christ knows each one of us even better than we actually know ourselves. And he knows our weaknesses, he understands our fears, and he even understands when we have doubts and fears just as Thomas did. You know, there's a couple of verses in Hebrews which I think are really helpful here. For we're told in Hebrews that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And our high priest in this case is the risen, ascended, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And here's the encouragement. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Although Jesus will not appear to you and me physically to help us when we doubt in the way that he did for Thomas, remember that he's already sent his Holy Spirit for each one of us and his Holy Spirit will deal with our doubts and our fears. And if you have doubts and fears, and I don't think I've ever met a Christian who hasn't, then take these to the Lord in prayer. Remember that hymn, take them to the Lord in prayer. Approach the grace, the, sorry, approach the throne of grace with confidence as we've just read in Hebrews. And I would go on to say this, that the very fact that you are concerned about doubts and fears that you have is actual proof that you have faith. If you didn't have faith, you simply wouldn't be bothered. If you didn't have faith, you wouldn't have doubts and fears. So if you are concerned about doubts and fears, in a rather remarkable way, it's actually proof of your own faith. And remember that Jesus commends both you and me for our faith. He said, blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. 
And to be blessed not only means to have unique joy in the Lord, but also that we are accepted by God. And we're accepted not just for today, not just for tomorrow. That acceptance is for eternity. Thomas saw in Jesus the marks of life and he made a wonderful confession of faith. And are we not compelled also to echo that confession of faith as we ponder upon these words recorded in this wonderful gospel by the Apostle John and to utter along with Thomas, my Lord and my God. It is the only reasonable response. But I think the thing to go away with is to be encouraged because in Thomas we have the most unyielding sceptic who has bequeathed to us the most profound confession. And as we close, let's meditate upon words that are written in Peter's first letter, where he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I wish every blessing upon you as you ponder upon these glorious and wonderful words. Amen.